Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan, and this is a carefully crafted devotional journey through the New Testament. Let's venture into deeper water as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in the world we live in now. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. We have taken 23 episodes to explore a section of the New Testament called the Sermon on the Mount. In the timeline of Jesus' ministry, this is often thought of as something that marks the passing from Jesus' first year of ministry into the second. The first year is known theologically as the year of inauguration, and the second year is known as a year of popularity. An event that is often associated with this transition includes the selection of 12 significant disciples. These will later be given the unique title of apostles. In this episode, I want to take a look at the team that Jesus chose to be with him in this crucial time in his ministry. Our passage for this time together is Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 19. We're going to read that now. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Sons of Thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jesus is now being cleared by the Father to appoint the twelve men who in roughly two years, perhaps a little less, would be leading the church after his death and departure. And in doing so, we see some interesting dynamics in play. Jesus has assembled a number of personalities and philosophies together and then given them time to develop and grow in their role under his careful watch. Let's explore this dynamic a bit. First, it is believed that the twelve are listed by the gospel writers in levels of intimacy or insiderness to Jesus, with the first four, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, being the ones who seem to be the closest to Jesus. We can certainly see that these four are present in the closer quarters of ministry and in the leadership of the first century church. We have explored their initial calling already, and you can hear that in episode 5. These were two sets of brothers who resided in a town called Bethsaida, near the Sea of Galilee, and all were offered the opportunity by Jesus to become his specially ordained fishers of men. These were what we might simply call normal people. They're doing normal everyday jobs, living normal everyday lives. And they are religiously normal too. They acknowledged the religion of their land as their basic devotion, but they held it at arm's length and were probably held at arm's length by that religion too. Being Galileans, they were considered too blue-collar to be trained by the more refined Jerusalem rabbis. They would be regarded as a little too tainted by neighbouring nations. Perhaps too much work for regular rabbis who preferred cleaner slates to work with than these sorts of men. But Jesus would take these normal knockabout lads and do something extraordinary with them. He took the form of a rabbi, And to the amazement of everybody said, I have chosen you 
and I will train you for the purposes of God. And these four became truly great men. When opportunities for ministry came up, these guys took the front row. When the other disciples didn't understand what Jesus was talking about, these four, more often than not, did. When the other guys couldn't see around something, these men found solutions. When some were fearful, these guys took the lead. When risk or faith steps were needed, these guys were the ones who took it. The normal, the ordinary of society became extraordinary followers of Jesus. That's important to note as we consider our own lives in the eyes of Jesus. I am an ordinary man. There's nothing all that special about me in any way, I can assure you of that. And you, the listener, might consider yourself, well, ordinary too. But Jesus works really well with ordinary, and he transforms ordinary people into solid disciples who can do extraordinary ministry in his name. But for ordinary to grow, we need to see that Jesus will also bring other people, different personalities to the mix. And that's what we see in this next level of followers. The list goes on here with Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, James the Lesser, and Thaddeus. Matthew is in there as well, but I'll speak about him a little later. Philip was from Bethsaida, just like Peter and Andrew. And he was called personally by Jesus to be a follower. But we see that over the course of Jesus' ministry, there were many times where he didn't get it. According to John chapter 6, verse 5, at the feeding of the 5,000, we see that it's Philip who looks at every option other than Jesus for solutions to the hunger of the crowd. Later in John chapter 14, we see Jesus at a dinner table before his arrest, and Philip is still not grasping his identity. Hey, Jesus, just show us the Father. Show us God, and we'll be just fine. Jesus' answer here is one of the great statements he makes about his own deity. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Next in line is Bartholomew, who is known in other Gospels as Nathaniel. He has some interesting traits about him. We first see him sitting in a working-class village area in Galilee. And in John chapter 1, when Philip comes to him to tell him about the Messiah, he almost snobbishly asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Then you have Thomas, the pessimist, the glass half-empty guy. In John chapter 11, we read of his attitude as Jesus turns to go and raise Lazarus from the dead. As they begin to follow, he is noted as saying, let us also go that we may die with him. And of course, he will forever go down in history as doubting Thomas because of his refusal to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. Thaddeus appears to be a quiet background guy in this mix, who was probably a little bit insecure in his faith. In John chapter 14, at the dinner that I mentioned earlier, we see him ask a pretty lowly question, Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Why us? What's so special about this group of 12 men that you have made your glory known to us while the leaders of the nation have completely missed the point? Who has asked questions like that to God before? I know I have. Why me, Jesus? What could you possibly see in me in that you would choose me for your purposes? 
And even quieter again is James, who was known as James the Lesser or James the Younger. Some of the accounts identify a guy named Alphaeus as his father. And interestingly, Mark notes that Matthew has a dad with the same name. So there is an outside chance of brotherhood in play here, although this has never been confirmed. We do know that James's mother was one of the Marys that followed and served Jesus. And we see this in the accounts of Jesus' death and burial. But interestingly, for an apostle, that's all we seem to know about him. So we have an ordinary core, and then we have some different personalities in the mix. In some cases, these are people who won't always get it. They'll be people who need time to work out who Jesus is. Some will be people with insecurities and shortcomings that help the core to grow in patience and love towards them. In this group that Jesus formed, the early adopters, like Peter and John, would need to slow down at times so that none would be left behind. Jesus did not remove these seemingly weaker or slower people from his team. He used people right where they were at and allowed them the space to work through their stuff with him at their side. By the same token, Jesus certainly didn't intend for the team to stay where they were at. He never told them to settle with an insecure or obscure stance. He never told the intolerant or the doubters to remain that way, but to move forward in faith and service. And the cool thing is this, if the core group can attract and work with these left-of-center types that we just talked about, the insecure, the doubter, the slower learner, and if they can move people like that forward and grow as a unified bunch of disciples together, then the last three can come in and be touched and used by Jesus as well. Let's look at these now. We'll begin with Matthew. We first talked about him in episode 7. Through his vocation, he became one of the more despised people out there, with social and religious ramifications. He had no other friends but the underbelly of society. It should also be noted that he was the guy that all the other men we've spoken of thus far had every reason to hate. He had sold his people out. Yet Jesus, the king of that same people, chose him as an intimate follower and eventually a leader in his church. The other disciples saw no reason to have this guy hang around, yet Jesus ordained him to be part of that group regardless. This would have been a real challenge for the disciples, and the uniting factor between them would not necessarily be their job or their demographic. The real uniting factor would be that Jesus ordained them to work together, no matter where they came from. And if you thought the tension of having Matthew on the team was enough, there's still more to come. Jesus adds to his 12 another gem in Simon the Zealot. In the first century, there were four divisions of the Jewish religion. The Pharisees were the majority group, and they clearly ruled the roost among the locals and lorded themselves over the working class. Behind them were the Sadducees, who were more aristocratic and dominated the priesthood. After that came a group called the Essenes. These were Jewish scholars who hid out in the desert and committed to a life of study. They are not presented in the New Testament because there would have been little to no interaction with them. And finally, the minority group were the Zealots. These were Jewish extremists. In 6 AD, they had been outlawed and forced underground. They were violently opposed to Roman rule. 
and the concept of their Jewish homeland being made subject to a pagan monarchy was an abomination. They assassinated Roman soldiers and dignitaries, and they made life hard for Roman sympathizers. In another life, Simon the Zealot would have chased guys like Matthew to a dark alley and killed him, and justified his actions that paying tribute to a pagan king was treason against God. Guys like Simon the Zealot would have been drawn to the apparent revolutionary words of Jesus, and would have seen the potential leadership of the nation that could come about through someone like him. Remember that messianic expectations of the time centered on removing Israel's bondage rather than anything grander such as saving the world. The Romans were the oppressors and their Messiah would come in Pharisaic holiness and zealously overthrow every enemy of God, or so they thought. But to be a disciple of the kingdom, Simon would be required to put his own agenda aside and serve the bigger one set by Jesus. He would be required to embrace peace, not hostility. He would be required to forgive his tax-collecting brother and work in unity with him. If he fell on his knees before Jesus, he would see Romans fall on their knees too. Church tradition links him with missionary work as far north as the Roman-occupied British Isles. And if you could make that sort of tension work, you could make the last guy fit in as well. From the southernmost region of Judea, in a little town called Kerioth Hezron, came a guy named Judas Iscariot. He's the only non-Galilean in the bunch, and he's easily the one disciple that we seem to know the most about because of the treachery he stands for. It's also fair for us to recognize that the negativity we read about in all the Gospels was through the 2020 vision of hindsight. So when Judas was spoken of, knowing the outcome, only the negatives would be needed to tell the story. It should be noted that in a time when Jesus put a line in the sand and a bunch of disciples left, Judas was still among the ones who stayed and said, where else would we go? He clearly had some credibility about him, enough to be the treasurer. But there were key shortcomings, which he clearly didn't properly address. And these things ended up ending him. First, his outsider status may have created this dynamic, but Judas was good at avoiding transparency. Effective disciples are transparent ones. Transparency is the ability to be honest about our shortcomings and own the times when we mess up. It is accountability on public display. And strong disciples of Jesus do this well. In fact, it is a remarkably refreshing trait to encounter even in the public sphere. Portraying perfection will always let you or others down at some point, And you'll be seen as a hypocrite if you want to present yourself that way. The world around us doesn't tolerate hypocrisy, but it is quite forgiving to a proactively transparent person. Second, Judas liked the association and the lifestyle of being around Jesus, but failed to surrender all to him. There was a point where Judas simply could not go in his call to discipleship, and this led to his demise. So that's the team Jesus selected. He started with a uniform, even normal, ordinary core. Then he added some color characters, if you like, people with some unique personalities. 
and then he brought in some that would cause some distinct tension. And lo and behold, it actually worked. They all had stuff to work on, but Jesus worked closely with them all. They all made mistakes. Judas did the sellout stuff, but they all ran away when Jesus got arrested. But aside from Judas, they all went on powerfully for Jesus. And we are here today because of the faithfulness of these men. They are all men other rabbis would reject. But after a short apprenticeship under Jesus, they turned the world upside down. There are some helpful writers out there who have given some great insight over the years about this Jesus team. More than 20 years ago, John MacArthur wrote this about them. These few men, whose backgrounds were in mundane trades and earthly occupations, had little more than 18 months training for the monumental task to which they were called. There was no second string, no backup players, no plan B if the 12 should fail. And the entirety of their training for the task took less than half as long as it typically takes to get a degree from seminary today. When Jesus ordains you to be a part of his team, in other words, when Jesus saved you and positioned you as a member of his body, the church, he took a deliberate action. He placed you in an environment where your talents, your outlook, your experience, elements of your personality and your skill set would be taken and used for the glory of God and for the spread of the gospel. And he does this in spite of our many flaws. He knew exactly what he was getting. And no matter what your background you have in life, we can clearly see through the example of these 12 men that he has you and his team for a purpose. He isn't letting you get all fixed up first, like that is ever going to fully happen. He isn't looking for perfect human beings. He is just looking for faithful and available ones. And if you will be that person, he will transform you as you go. Writer and leadership coach Dale Roach describes Jesus' team as a motley crew. In a blog post, he wrote this, Motley crews are, by definition, non-uniform and undisciplined as a group. They are characterized by containing characters of conflicting personality, varying backgrounds, and usually to the benefit of the group, a wide array of methods for overcoming adversity. Traditionally, a motley crew who in the course of a story comes into conflict with an organized, uniform group of characters, will prevail. This is generally achieved through the narrative utilizing the various specialties, traits, and other personal advantages of each member to counterbalance the often sole specialty of a formal group of adversaries. Some listening right now may be a little aloof from a church community. For some of you, The dynamic of so many personalities in those community settings might have become a little bit hard to deal with. Perhaps a bit of dysfunction or disunity put you off. Perhaps it was straight-up unresolved conflict. Maybe it all got a little bit motley. But if you consider yourself a mature and healthy disciple of Jesus, that motley crew needs you more than you know. Just consider how crazy that first 12 would have been at times. Imagine the agendas and the extremes and the infighting and even the elements of betrayal around Jesus himself. Then ask yourself this, is your experience really that bad? Friends, let's embrace our motley crews. 
celebrate the core of that crew and take your place among them if you are able. Embrace the colourful and the left-of-centre characters of that crew. Often it's newer believers who make this number up, and it can be exciting working alongside them. And let us not see tension or difference as disunity. God works well among the different outlooks that make up the team. Despite the tensions and the differences and the varying personalities, lean into the motley crew that discipleship comes from, understanding that every member is there because of one call. Follow me. Let's finish this episode with a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you for drafting me into your team and for your call to discipleship. Help me to take my place in that team willingly and joyfully. Help me to be a team player and help me to lean into the motley crew that it can sometimes be. Help me to be patient with other disciples. Help me to learn from them. Help me to be sharpened by them. And help me to be a vital part of your mission in the earth as my team works towards that end together. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. To stay in touch, like our Devotions in the Deep End Facebook page and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to catching up next time.